As we're starting this new year and as we've been praying and thinking about, you know, this is a new season for us. It feels like a fresh grace for us this year. Um, how do we go about, you know, embarking on this new year together as a family? What kind of vision? What kind of theme? You know, I keep getting asked, like, so are we going to have a theme for the year? This is like, this is like the reveal of the year. We're waiting for this, you know. And, um, you know, sadly, we're going to inform you, we will not have a theme of the year, which is okay, which is okay. God still moves. You'll be fine. What we do encourage you to do, though, you know, is take time to pray and consecrate this year. We believe that God has a theme, you know, and perhaps even a verse for you to hold on to this new year. And um, we really encourage everybody to do that. So in the past, we've kind of relied on the year theme or the year verse or something like that to kind of give us definition and give us direction and show us where we need to go. Uh, but this year will be a little bit different, and I think it is, it is a good change. Um, so as the staff and as a board, we've been praying about, okay, so what is it then that we are rallying around as a church and as a vision? Um, what is it that we're rallying around? And... You know, I would love to be able to give you a 10-year game plan, like right now, and tell you exactly what's going to happen for the next year right now, but that is just not the kind of season we're in. I think we were hoping that that would be the time that we would have last year, where we would, okay, we get to regroup, we get to settle. Things never settled last year, never did. Um, And so it's teaching us really how to trust God step by step without the game plan in advance. This is not, you know, an excuse for, like, lack of preparation, lack of diligence, lack of prayer. That's not what we're talking about. But we as a community, we're going through a season where we're learning once again, you know, to trust God every step of the way. It's almost like the Israelites, what they must have felt like going into the wilderness. Hopefully this is not the wilderness, but follow me. Uh, So going into the wilderness with no guarantee other than a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And that's all they had to go on. They just have to trust that God is going to provide. They have to trust that they're going to be okay. They're going to trust that they're going to have food to eat. They're going to have water to drink. Just every step of the way being asked, do you really trust that he's leading you in the right path? And so we as a church, you know, are trusting him for the same thing. God has a future for us. God has a vision in store for us. But, you know, we just need to trust him. And we have to trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what this year's about. He knows exactly what we need. He anticipates our needs, and he's going to meet us in that way. So today, um, I'll be preaching on um, something that I feel like will give us a bit of direction, not in the way that you know a theme verse or something like that would do for the beginning of the year, but something that just as a whole, not even as New Philly, just as a Christian, as a Christian, something that will give us direction. Sometimes when we're looking for a word from the Lord, we want it to be really creative. Like we want God to reinvent the wheel every time. Like we want something like really obscure, you know, from a minor prophet somewhere in the Old Testament. Like we want it to be like really mysterious and obscure. And sometimes it's actually what God is asking us is in plain sight. It's very simple, but it's often neglected. And so today I'm going to be preaching on the first commandment. If there's anything that should be guiding us this year and onwards, if there's anything that is of first importance, when we're asking ourselves this question, we're asking ourselves, what kind of church are you trying to build, Lord? What kind of vision do you have for us? What kind of future do you have for us? We cannot start this question from a place of looking around what is the general global body of Christ doing, You know, we cannot start from what is my personal preference? What is my favorite verse from the Bible? We cannot start from, um, I don't know, like the cultural context we're in. We cannot start from what demographic do we have? We cannot start even from what demographic do we want? What kind of needs are we trying to meet? That, that those, all those things are really important and they do need to be addressed, but that is not the primary place where we need to start when we're asking God, what kind of church are you trying to build? All these things are important, but if this this is our starting point, then it means that we're going to end up with as many visions for the church as there are people. 
If there's 180 people in here, then it means we're going to have 180 ideas of what the church should look like. So as I was praying into this, I couldn't help but be directed to a very simple yet profound passage that basically condenses the whole of the counsel of the Lord, all 66 books basically condensed into four words, if we were to, if we were to say that. So if you have your Bible with you, I would like to ask you to turn to Matthew 22. I'm going to have slides for that as well, but if you want to follow along with your Bible, um, you can do so as well. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. And the context for these verses is basically Jesus is sandwiched in between, caught in the crossfire between two different groups of Jewish teachers, let's say. One is the Pharisees and one is the Sadducees. And they're both known to be like experts in the law. They know their stuff, you know, but these are two competing groups that are putting Jesus in the middle and they're kind of wanting him to take their side. But Jesus refuses to do that. And basically, um, as they're going back and forth, he keeps showing them that neither side is actually correct in their understanding of the word and of God's heart. Um, And so in the midst of this, this is like a showdown. This is like a verse off, like I give you a verse and then you, you kind of fire back with another verse. This is basically going from Matthew 21 to Matthew 25. It's a series of like burns, right? Of like religious people trying to burn each other. Um, and then, so we go into Matthew 22 verse 34 and it says, hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So he has a trick question in store for Jesus. And it is this teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, if he answers anything here, we're going to have a comeback for him as well. Because there's no way that he can hone in on one thing without neglecting hundreds of other things. So they're asking him a trick question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is what he ends with. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, A theologian by the name of A.T. Robertson, he says, as far as the Jewish scholars knew, there were 248 affirmative precepts. So these are the things that you need to do. 248 eight of them. That's a whole lot of things, right? Not just that, but there's also 365 things that you need to not do in order to keep the law. So we're talking about a total of 613 things that you need to keep in mind in order to honor the word of God. So this is, this is what they're thinking. If he says one thing, there's probably going to be 612 other things that he's neglecting. This is because of uh, their, their belief that there's 248 affirmative precepts. That's as many members as, uh, as many precepts as there are members in the human body. So they would say like, this is the toe, this is the little toe, this is the, you know, they they would divide the body up anatomically into 248 uh, parts. And so they would say, okay, as many parts as there are in the body, that those are the things that we need to do. As many days as there are in the year, these are the things that we ought not to do, right? That's 365. And then as many letters in the alphabet as there are in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, we know that came down in the Mount Sinai through Moses, as many uh, letters as there are in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, which is 613, those are the many, the number of uh, precepts that we need to keep in mind if we want to honor the Word of God. But this is what A.T. Robertson says, but Jesus cuts through such pettifogging Hair splitting, I love that, petty fogging, hair splitting, right? They're trying to get to the nitty-gritty, unimportant, trivial things just to kind of be able to prove each other wrong in order to get to the heart of the problem. That is what Jesus does. He basically boils down this entire thing into two commandments, and he gives us a mental picture of pegs. You know, like pegs, like hooks where you hang things. 
So he says that all these things, including all 613 precepts that you need to keep in order to honor the word of God, all those things actually hang on just two hooks, two pegs. And that is the first thing is you need to love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. So today we'll be talking about that first part, just the first commandment, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And next week we'll be talking about that second part, which is just as important as well. So let me begin this by saying about 10 years ago in my previous church, we actually had within uh, leadership, I was a pastor back then as well um, in this previous church, we were going through a season of like, okay, we need to pray into and brainstorm what our vision is going to be as a church. And we took like hours and hours and hours to throw out all these different ideas, brainstorming, like, you know what? I think we need to be about the poor. You know, you know what? I, ne- I think we need to be about reaching in our campuses. You know what? No, I think we need to build up families. You know what? I feel like we need to do all these things. And we just pile it on and on. And it became like this, you know, mission statement that was like a paragraph long and nobody will ever be able to memorize it or remember it. And so then we went through another, you know, batch of hours and hours to kind of boil it down. And basically what we ended up in the end was this, right? It took us hours, like, I mean, like eight hours to come up with something that was already explicitly written in the Bible. And it boils down to those two things, loving the Lord and loving people. That's it. So even when we are praying as a church, which direction we have to take, what things we need to emphasize, what is the flavor, what is the language, what is the DNA, you can call it whatever you want. But it needs to hang on those two things, loving God and loving people. Some things are actually very simple in Christianity. So simple that we neglect them. We're like, it cannot be as simple as loving God and loving people. It needs to sound edgier. It needs to sound cooler. Like, we cannot just have those two very simple things. But the Bible and Jesus, it tells us that actually it boils down to just those two things, loving God and loving people. So I'm saving us all the pain of those eight hours of brainstorming and trying to reinvent the wheel. And we're going to start in that place that Jesus has already bookmarked for us in the Bible. So we're going to take a moment to go through um, just that first portion where we talked about the first commandment. So Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to take a moment. I don't know if, if you guys are nerdy or anything like that and you guys love going into foreign languages and stuff. But we're going to go into Greek just a little. Wow. Emily was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> Greek on a Sunday afternoon. So we're going to go into the Greek just a little bit. So we're going to get tease out a few nuances about love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, uh, all your soul and all your mind. Isn't that cool looking? Just by virtue of having this slide up here makes me feel intelligent, you know? It's like, I know Greek. Okay. Now I'm going to look at my notes because I don't know how to read that. Okay. Uh, so it says, agape says kurian ton theon so, and hole ekardia so, kai en hole te sike so, 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 so you guys are like tracking with the so's, right? You're like, that's a so, that's a so, that's a so, that's a so. It's like when you're trying to um, sing in, in a karaoke room, you can only follow along the yo, 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 when you're trying to, anyway, that's just me, right? When I'm trying to rap in Korean, I just catch the yo's. Okay, so we're tracking here with the Greek a little bit. And so we're going to break it down just a little bit. We're going to start with agapeses. It basically just means you shall love. And it is not you should love. It's not you could love. It is you shall love. You will love. It is an imperative form. Otherwise, we would have a little bit of wiggle room to say, look, it's kind of an optional thing, whether you choose to love or not. Love is kind of like the cherry on top. Like you do all these good works, you follow all these things. And then if you actually love God at the end of all of that, that's just like a bonus, like an extra, like a true guy, like, like God, you should feel lucky that I've added this thing on. But this is not what the text says. It is an imperative. That is what this first commandment starts with. It isn't a luxury. It isn't an option. It is an imperative command. You shall love. And it's not just any kind of love. It's you shall agape. 
So agapeses, if you guys kind of catch on, it comes from the root of agape, right? And it's the same word that is found in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 defines this kind of love as a love that is unconditional, perfect, not self-serving, not proud, not self-seeking, not envious, not boastful, etc., etc., etc. So we're talking about not our own definition of what love should be because that would also give us wiggle room. Like, well, you know, I, I get to define what love means. I get to do it on my own terms, but that's not the kind of wiggle room that the Bible gives us. In fact, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 it says it this way, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not agape, it's not agape, it's agape, agape, I am, not only, I'm a, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not agape, I am nothing. I am nothing. It makes it really black and white really really clear you get no wiggle room here basically the bible is saying no amount of gifting no amount of calling no amount of training no amount of equipping no amount of god-given talents none of that can make up for the fact that you do not have love none of it now this sounds really obvious to us but functionally often this is not what we live by. Functionally, we're like, as long as my performance is at a certain level, as long as, you know, I am not doing something explicitly really, really bad, you know, I think this is, I guess, love, you know, or as long as I'm following things, maybe not to a T, but just enough, then maybe I can get by the fact that I actually don't love that's not what the Bible says. It gives no room for us to make this an optional thing. And if there's ever been a season for us to get this right in our hearts and our minds and set this as a priority, it is the season. That means that as, as we are praying as a church to build up this church, we're thinking through, the first thing that we think through is how to build up discipleship, how to build up a children's ministry, how to you know, get things off the ground, how to raise attendance, how to uh, figure out our giving, how to work out a permanent building. All those things are important, yes, but they're not the non-negotiable that the Bible is talking about. We cannot, we cannot afford to neglect this. And this is the starting point for all of us. This, we need to be all on the same page here. Like no matter what a lot of things pan out to be for this year. This is our one non-negotiable. We need to, at the end of this year, have learned how to love. We need to, as we are building this church, make this a church that knows how to love. And then 1 Corinthians 13 goes on to say, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not agape, I've gained nothing. Again, no wiggle room here. It says no amount of selfless service to the poor, to the oppressed, to the needy, to the mourning, to the broken. It doesn't matter. No amount of selfless service will make up for the fact that we do not have love. This we need to keep in mind as we are emphasizing family, like a sense of family coming together. First of all, you can't really build a sense of family without agape, right? But often when we start on these pet projects that we have, on these initiatives that we have, on these programs that we want to launch, all these things, if we are missing the point, which is agape, then we have gained nothing according to this verse. We have accomplished nothing. It is as if we just sat on our butts this entire year and did nothing. It would be an amount up just to the same thing. So if as a church we want to serve the poor or the marginalized in society, we need to understand this because without love you gain nothing as if you had done nothing to begin with. This is important also for people. You, know, you might be here in the room and you know, there's certain passions and callings that God has placed in your heart. Perhaps you have a passion for North Korea. Perhaps you have a passion for uh, human trafficking, for orphans, for... Um, social justice for social reform you you might have a heart for all these things this is a verse that you really do need to keep in mind no amount of training calling gifting talent education support group network no amount of these things will make up for the fact that you do not have love 
And then for those who, you know, are servant-hearted, for those who do want to, you know, do all these great things for the kingdom, this is a very fair warning for a lot of us. It is you need to make sure that love is at the bottom of all this. Love is what undergirds all these efforts. If you have not love, if you have not agape, you have gained nothing. So if we go back, nope, not to that. Hey, sorry, can I get a little help? Yeah. So we go back to the verse. We talk about agapes, uh, agapeses, you shall love. And that is what the first commandment starts with. Obviously, our second question would be, all right, so we should love. And the second question is, who? Who is the object of our agape? Who needs to be the first most recipient of this love? And the Bible, again, makes no, give us, gives us no wiggle room, no cushion for us to give another answer but this. Kyrion ton theonso. Kyrion ton theonso. And I've translated it. It could be translated many different ways, but I've purposefully translated it this way. Master the God of you. Okay? So master, uh, it's word by word, right? Master is Kyrion. The God is Tantheon of you. So, so a lot of translations will say the Lord your God. That is how, you know, normal people speak, right? But I wanted to intentionally kind of break it down in this way and intentionally also translate the word uh, Kyrion, not to just Lord, but also to master, which is also a meaning of this word, because we tend to over-spiritualize the word Lord. We tend to kind of gloss over it. It's just the equivalent of God. It's the equivalent of whatever. And so we kind of tend to gloss over the word Lord. We over-spiritualize it. We water it down when it actually, it, it means master. It means you shall love the Lord. I mean, the God, your master, or you shall love the master, your God. That's what, that's what this verse means. So this is my question to all of us. In the way that we love, do we acknowledge that we do have a master? That our life doesn't belong to us? That we've been ransomed? That we've been paid for? In our minds, again, we do. We're like, yes, I confess the Lord as my, no, I confess God as my Lord and my Savior. I confess God as my master and my Savior. Like that kind of like makes you kind of uncomfortable. And that's the whole point. We ought to live lives that look like you have a master over you. And this is language that we don't like, especially in Western Christianity, because we are all about independence, autonomy. Like if the sun is set, you're free. You're free indeed. Yes, but you also become a bond slave, a bond servant to the Lord now. It doesn't mean... You are free to now just pursue your own will. It means you submit to the will, not of the world, not of your flesh, not of anything else. But now you submit your will to the will of God. And in that way, you do have a master. It's just no longer sin, no longer the flesh, no longer the world, but it is the Lord your God. Because in the, for, in the, the most part, we live apart from this reality. And this comes up especially when inconveniences come our way or when sacrifice has to be made or plans are derailed or you don't get what you want or you choose to withhold obedience until you have full understanding. It's moments like that where you're like something in you, usually the flesh in you is like, but, but this is not what I asked for. But, but this is not what I wanted to decide. But why does somebody else other than me gets to make, get to make a decision about my life? It's in those moments that we realize that our flesh is very much still the master of our lives. It doesn't come up until those really uncomfortable situations. We realize like, ah, I thought I'd surrendered that to the Lord. I thought I was fully in submission, fully under the lordship of God, but that is not the case. This does not mean to say we follow blindly and we become like very fatalistic, like, Kisera, Sarah, like what will be, will be, and I just go with 
wherever you know life leads me and it doesn't become you be doesn't mean you become a hippie and you know like whatever the lord brings my that's not what it means that's not what i'm talking about but i'm talking about the part in us that plays along with god only as long as it agrees with something that we were kind of already okay with you know the part in us that reads the bible very selectively you know like ah that passage I like that passage i kind of don't i don't know if i believe this but i really do believe this this thing about me getting blessed like yeah i really believe this but the part where yeah i'm supposed to be consecrated and be holy and be righteous and you know, repent and uh, like you know so there's parts in us that resist god's mastery over us i'm talking about the part that connects with the lord only when it's convenient and i'm not saying that you know it's a bad thing to come to the lord in desperation, in need, when you reach the end of your rope, that is the perfect time to go and seek the Lord. Do that all you want. Knock yourself out. But it cannot be the only time you seek the Lord. It cannot be just exclusively when it benefits your interests. So when we do things on our own terms and we stand over the word and say, I get to determine what I call truth, what parts of this I choose to accept, that says something about lordship. That says something about what it is that you're actually serving. Is it the Lord or is it your self-interest? Is it the Lord or is it your understanding? I'm not saying that there isn't understanding that you need to have. We need to be seeking the Lord. We need to be looking into his counsel. Yes. But if we ever come to a place where we're withholding obedience because our mind can't wrap around something, because we can't get full understanding of something, like I need all my ducks in a row, I need to be super sure, you know, that this is what I want as well. And, you know, you need to kind of like persuade me, Lord, and all of that. Then that says something about lordship. That says something about what you're submitting to. If we go on with a verse, and holete cardia so, so now you know the so, and cardia hopefully sounds very familiar. It translates literally as withhold the heart of you. Nobody speaks like that again, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, we get a few nuances. I, I like this because you can look at it and say, with the wholeness of your heart or the whole of the heart of you, with all of your heart captures it, but not, I feel like not as clearly as this, with the whole of your heart, with the whole of your cardia. Now we look at this word cardia and we isolate this word cardia and distill it its meaning, as it's defined in the Bible, it can mean four different things. It can mean the organ, so the actual pumping organ that's inside your chest cavity. It can also mean the vigor and sense of physical life. It can also mean the seat and center of spiritual life, so your affections, your passions, your desires, your appetites, your purposes, your endeavors. And it can also mean the middle, central, or inmost part of any being. This means that you have to, you will, you shall agape the Lord, your, the God, your master, with all of, sure, your organ, sure, uh, but with all of your vigor and sense of physical life, with all of your seat and center of everything that encompasses your spiritual life and with the inmost part of you. That's what loving the Lord with all your heart means. We go on back to the verse. Kai and hole te sike so. So te sike so. So if we isolate the word sike, which means the soul, the whole of the soul of you, the whole of the soul of you, that kind of rhymes a little bit. If we isolate this word to get its full meaning as well, CK, so the soul, it actually means several different things. The first thing that it means is breath. With every breath that you have, you love the Lord. With every breath you are given, you agape God, your master. Second, it could mean actually life. So it means with entirety of your life, with every breath you have, even unto death, that's what it implies, right? With all of your life, you love the Lord. And lastly, it is also the seat of your affections, your volition, your desire, your desires and your aversions. So it's encompassing a whole lot of different things, right? It's not just soul is something ambiguous, something like, you know, something that, you know, you can't really grasp, but it means all these different things. We go back to the last part of 
this commandment. It is kai and hole te dianoia. So with a whole, the mind of you, with a whole dianoia of you, and that means first the faculty of understanding, feeling, desiring. Second is understanding. Third is way of thinking and feeling. And fourth, it is thoughts, either good or bad. So this verse means that we agape God, our master, with the wholeness of the faculty of understanding our feelings, our desiring, our understanding, the ways that we think and we feel, our entirety of our thoughts, whether they be good or bad. It means with all of our intellect, it means with everything that we have. So we go back to the verse, the whole verse. Agapesis kirian tantheon so, and holy te cardia so, kain holy te sikia so, kain holy te dianoia so. It means you shall love your God, your master, with the whole of your heart, and with the whole of your soul, and with the whole of your mind. And this means you love God, with all your volition, your thought life, your emotions, your passion, your decision-making, your affections, your intellect, your understanding, your planning, your coming and going, your desiring, your hoping, your time, your strength, your breath, your life. That is what loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That is all that it means. So essentially, we're basically just saying you love God with all you are and all you have. This means without limitations without rationing the love that we give to him without calculating like you give me this much and i give you this much you've blessed me this much i will bless you this much without that kind of calculating without holding back it means you don't compromise when following his commandments because the word says that he who loves god follows his commandments it affects how you worship it affects how you pray it affects how you read the word how you spend your time how you give generously, how you honor him at work. It affects all these different things. So my question is, what does it look like when you worship God like this? What, what would a discipleship group look like when you love the Lord like this? What would a workplace look like if you love the Lord in this way? What would your thought life look like? What would your time management look like? What would your finances look like? What would your romantic life look like? What would your family look like? If we love the Lord so entirely, so wholeheartedly, in such a focused way. By extension, because this basically encompasses everything, right? It just It's everything. By extension, it means that we need to battle against certain things that are the antithesis of that first commandment. This is just a list of you. This is not an exhaustive list. The first I would say is compromise. It means that we need to battle compromise. And this is the default of our flesh. We're going to want to compromise. I guarantee you, you don't even have to wait till next week for you to want to compromise. It's going to happen within the next hour, two hours. Like it's, it's going to happen. As, as great as we think we are, as much trust as we think we have in ourselves, we are bound to compromise unless we battle against this, unless we are vigilant against this. Second thing would be idolatry, for sure. We are, by nature, creatures of idolatry. It means we want to worship something other than God, anything other than God, even if it is something that we feel is Christian and holy. Did you know you can idolize ministry? You can. Did you know you can idolize a church name it is not the same as worshiping the lord it is not mutually exclusive it's actually easier to idolize those things because you're under the illusion that oh if i uphold new philly or if i uphold a ministry calling or if i uphold something good and holy and that god blesses it obviously means that i'm idolizing you know worshiping the lord but that's not the case it's actually much easier much easier to get lost in, in like, there's a fine line there um, that we don't normally distinguish. So idolatry, it can be something good. It doesn't need to be ministry. It can be family. It is possible to idolize your family. If it is, if you're loving the family, your master, with all your heart, soul, mind, 
that's how you go on the fast track to idolizing your family. It can be work, career, as, as well-intentioned as we are. If you're like, man, I am going to serve the homeless with all I have, and it's going to be for the glory of God, but if that becomes your idol, that becomes your God, and that is the one thing that you're prioritizing, the one thing that you're loving with all your heart, soul, and mind, that is also not the same as saying that you're loving the Lord. So it doesn't mean... You know, it doesn't mean that we don't do all these good things, but we need to be darn clear about what is our priority. Like crystal clear. Every second is a far second to the Lord. Every priority is a far second when it comes to what you're worshiping and what you're idolizing. Third, this is, we're experts at this. We compartmentalize. There's areas in our lives that we give God access to. Like, God, you're allowed in this area, but this area... I'm not so sure. Like, this area, I think I can figure it out. I'm going to say two things, and already you're going to feel like resistance coming in your heart. Okay? Okay? Are you ready? Money. You felt that resistance? Yeah. Okay? It's because, it's because we have our walls up. We're like, this area, God, I can, it's not the same as saying church. It's not the same as saying pastor. As, you know, this area, God, I can lord over. This area, you don't really get to say, have a say in this. Like, I'm actually going to pick and choose. I'm actually going to decide. And that is one way in which com- we compartmentalize. And it's become so um, easy for us to do. And that's why we never really want to talk about this, especially from the pulpit. Because nobody wants to hear that the Lord, your God, is also the Lord over your finances. Everybody's like, he's the Lord over my calling, my family, this and that. But... Like, don't touch my money, Lord. You know, that's where we draw the line. That's when we realize that we compartmentalize it. That we give him full access to other things, but this one thing, we're like, no, you don't have full access to that. You actually need to go by me, and I'm the one who gets to decide these things. And so as we are surrendering more and more areas of our lives to the Lord, we're going to begin to see, like, oh, this is one area that I actually did not submit to the Lord. That's the one area. Second, dating life dating life. You're like, yeah, this, I think I can figure out. Like me and my buddies, we can figure it out. Me and like whoever is really close to me and knows me really well, we can figure it out. But we don't really, I don't really want the word to speak into this. I don't want anybody really to speak into this. And I want to make the shots. It doesn't mean that you say yes and okay to everything everybody says. But man, like you, you need to allow the Lord into that area as well. Those are, I would say those are the, the two areas if, if it's not dating life, I would say it's family. Like, if you have a family, if you're raising family, it's like, all right, that area, uh, don't tell me how to raise my kids, Lord. Like, I get to decide that, you know? Those are areas where naturally, in our flesh, we're going to compartmentalize. We're like, oh, Lord, we give you everything. But these areas we're not going to talk about just yet. And so we need to realize that when we compartmentalize areas of our lives, that's a hindrance to loving God, your master, with all your heart, soul, and mind. Another thing, complacency. Complacency is simply saying, I think I'm good enough. I think I'm passionate enough. I think I'm generous enough. I think as long as I don't technically sin, I'm good enough. That's, that's complacency. It's, mean, it's meaning instead of pursuing righteousness, we're just wanting to get by. Just wanting to like do the bare minimum. As long as I'm not in your, you know, on on your bad side, as long as I'm just not doing something explicitly bad, like I think I can live with that. I think I'm okay. Or as long as I am as passionate and as zealous as the rest of the people in this church, then I think I'm okay. That is also complacency. That is also complacency. As passionate as people in this church might be, as zealous as people in this church might be, if you've come to a place where instead of measuring your life against the word, you're measuring your, your life against, well, what is my neighbor doing? What is my fellow, you know, church attendee doing? Then it's only a matter of time before you fall into a place like, I'm, I'm good enough. As long as I'm ahead of the curve, as long as I'm not like the bottom percentage, like I'm pretty good. That is complacency. 
And that's something that we need to be very vigilant about. We so quickly, it doesn't take even a week for us to get to that place. It takes like minutes, minutes to get into that place. And lastly, apathy. Apathy. And I'm going to be very careful with this, okay, because I know that everybody goes through dry spells, everybody goes through dry season. But if you are okay with that, there's a problem there. I really get encouraged by people who talk to me and say, like, you know, I've, I've been trying to seek the Lord, and I just cannot, I feel like I cannot connect with him. I don't hear his voice. And there is, like, distress in, in, in their, the tone of their voice. They're like, something is wrong. I know that this is not what it was meant to be. And that's a good tension to be in. I'm more worried about people who are like, yeah, I haven't felt anything from the Lord. Yeah. Well, hopefully 2019 will be better. That, that is apathy. That is when you're okay with being there. So when we look at these things, it doesn't mean you need to have everything right in order to be able to love the Lord. It doesn't mean you need all your ducks in a row. It doesn't mean that we need to have it all together. It means, though, that we need to set ourselves in a trajectory. We need to be facing a certain direction. We cannot be where we are and be okay with it. We, not, we cannot be where we are and look around and be like, well, okay, everybody seems to be doing about the same, and so I'm okay with that. It means we need to set ourselves on a trajectory and a direction. We need to face a direction and encourage one another, pray for one another, root for one another, challenge one another, provoke one another. That's why we need one another. It means that we make a commitment in our hearts to honor this, and every time we find ourselves getting off track, and this will happen, we will get off track. I don't know anybody on earth who has loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind perfectly for all the days of their lives. That's just, the only person has been Jesus, and that's it. So all of us, we're going to get off track somewhere down the road. It doesn't need to be far down the road. It could be like even right now. But when that time comes, we need to get up and start over again and face the right direction once again. That's what repentance means. Repentance doesn't mean you never fall again. It just means you're facing the right direction. You're going in a certain direction. And there's grace to persevere. And there's mercy when we don't. And we need to get back on track. Now, that sounds like a tall order. But fortunately, there is good news that we are not left to our own devices. Because loving God is not a self-initiated, self-sustained, self-perpetuated, self-motivated endeavor where you just need to try harder. You just need to be more disciplined. You just need better accountability partners. That's, that's not what it is. The gospel isn't about a God that demands allegiance and obedience and performance and sacrifice. It is about a God who is perfect and holy and righteous and loving and compassionate who saw us already in our brokenness and our self-interest and our pride and our blindness and our hopelessness and came down to dwell among us. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross so that those who had no hope can now have hope. Those who were slaves to sin now can be a slave to righteousness. That is what the gospel is about. Those who live at the mercy of their own whims, of their flesh, of the spirit of the age, of the demands of the world, of the demands of their family, of whatever it is, would now pledge allegiance to a king of justice and mercy, a God of humility and glory, a God of grace and truth. That is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. All other religions are about man's search for God. If we are good enough, if we follow well enough, if we obey well enough, Maybe I can get close to God. But Christianity is the one religion in the world where instead of that happening, Christianity acknowledges that man won't search God when left to our own devices. Nothing in us, nothing in our flesh wants God. Nothing in us wants holiness and righteousness. And so God had to come and he had to search for man. God came, rescued man. There's one hero of the story and it is God. There's one sustainer in the story and that is God. This one enabler in the story, and that is God. He bore the full weight of our wrath that we could partake in the full weight of his glory and his victory. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. That you don't have to walk away here with like, man, man, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can agape the 
God my master with all my all of that that she listed out. Like, I don't think I can do that. The good news for you is that God has made a way. God has already paid the price. God is the one who came to us. And as 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. And this is true on our best day and also true on our worst day. The only way that we can love God is because he loved us first. No one here is exempt from that. No matter how kind-hearted you are, you cannot love God if you hadn't loved me first. It is God-initiated. We don't have to perpetuate it. We don't have to, man, muster it up and just try harder next year and set more goals for this year. And That is not the yoke that we're meant to carry. That is not a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew this. We can only love because he first loved us. Um, we're going to close with this. Can I have the praise team come up in the meantime? I'm going to close with this encouragement. So love and adoration and worship, being able to love the Lord, to, being able to agape the Lord, it isn't a self-initiated discipline. Can I give you a very concise definition of what worship means? It's not like when there's music playing. It's not like when there's lyrics up on a screen. It's not like when I have my headphones in and I have QT. Worship is simply this. It is a response to revelation. A response to revelation. It is not self-initiated. It is not when you muster things up. It is simply a response to revelation. And revelation is something that God himself gives. That means... That when we see God rightly, we cannot help but worship him rightly. We cannot help but love him rightly. Let me give you this example. I often face this. uh, If you guys uh, don't know, I'm, I'm also the director of our house of prayer. What we do at our house of prayer, week in and week out, is we set aside two hours just to seek the Lord. Like, no agenda. We're like, Lord... I'm not here just to ask for something. I'm not here just to, you know, like have an exchange with you. All I want to do with with the next two hours is I want to meet with you. I want to bless you. I want to see you. And for two hours, I'm not going anywhere. You have my full attention. That's all you do at K1 when we meet every week. And I'd love to tell you that every week I show up to K1 like, man, I can't wait to get into the word. Like, man, I can't. I am bursting at the seams of love for God. That's not how I show up at K1 every week. Sometimes I'm just tired. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I know I should love you, but I really don't right now. Like, there's so many other things on my mind. There's so many other things that I want to pursue. There's so many other worries in my heart. Like, I just, yeah. Can we be honest? I don't really love you right now. You know, I'm, I'm not there. And... I face this over and over again, you know, every week. There's weeks where it's easier, there's weeks where it's harder. But this is the assurance that I have that I don't need to muster up my affection. I don't need to work myself into emotion. All I need to do is ask for God to reveal himself. And he is true to show himself to those who seek. Those who seek will find. Those who ask will be answered. It is... I can't even think of a week in the last seven years of doing that week in and week out where he hasn't shown himself in some way or another. Somehow he shows me something that I didn't know before about him. And somehow he leads me to that place of worship. And that is, thank goodness that's how it works because I don't have it in me to seek him two, four hours a week in a focused way and force myself to feel things. I don't have it in me, and the Lord knows that. All he's asking is set aside this time, ask for revelation, open up your eyes, let me show you that I'm a God who's worthy of worship, and you will worship, and you will learn to love me, and you will learn to trust me. And that is the beauty of simply seeking the Lord in this way. There's a scene in the book of Revelation where God for a brief moment, he pulls back the veil and allows us to see him in his full glory. It's in Revelation. It's both chapters 4 and 5, and I'm not going to read it just because it's so long. I'm just going to read portions of it, but it's basically 
God showing us just a glimpse of what extravagant love and extravagant worship looks like in its purest form. It is God the Father seated on the throne and robed in glory, surrounded by sea like emerald and rainbow, and he himself looks like jasper and carnelian. He's radiating. There's thunder and lightning emanating from the throne. There's four living creatures that cover their eyes because they're blinded by his glory. There's 24 elders that surround his throne. They can't help but continue to lay down their crowns at his feet. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels that are worshiping him day and night around the throne. And this is all not because, not because they have it in them, not because they are emotional people, not because they love to sing. It is simply because they're opening their eyes and seeing who God is. And this is the most natural response to God's glory. It is undignified wholehearted, passionate, zealous worship of God. It doesn't mean it's always loud. It doesn't mean it sounds a certain way. All I'm saying is like it's wholehearted. With everything they have, they're worshiping the Lord. They don't have even space to look at anything else. So I'm going to ask all of us to just close our eyes, and I'm going to read a few of these verses, and then we're going to have the praise team lead us in a closing song. Revelation chapter 4, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne and surrounding the throne were 24 elders, 24 other thrones and 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes all around and even under their wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And... uh, He came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding seven bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with the blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is around them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. 